Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. I am your host, Daniel Gundlach, and I am thrilled to share with you the opera and classical singers about whom I am most passionate. I hope that when you hear these voices, you might echo me in saying, God, I love her, or God, I love him. Now, Without any further ado, I bring you this week's episode. And right now I'd like to uh, slow the tempo down a bit and do this number that everybody's doing here lately. It's a very beautiful number and I hope you like it. It goes like this. Oh, 
Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Counter Melody. We just heard the magnificent singer Jewel Brown, who, until a few minutes ago, I had never heard of. That was a 1963 performance with Louis Armstrong in Japan. After leaving the business in 1971, in recent years, Jewel Brown has returned to performing, and now at the age of 82, I hope that this is still the case, is well and up until this latest world disaster uh, was still out there performing. I wish her well and I wish all of you well. By the way, I'm very grateful. I had two listeners pledge their weekly support to me on Patreon this week. In fact, are my first weekly supporters. So I'm very grateful to both of them. And though I would not presume to ask any of you for anything right now, if those of you who can feel inspired to support the podcast, I will put the link to the Patreon page on the show notes page, and you can pledge whatever amount you wish to per week. Or you can just keep coming back and listening to whatever I'm inspired to bring you on a given week. I didn't know until this very morning what this podcast was going to be. At first, I'd wanted to bring you a Schubert program called Frühlingsglaube, Faith in Spring, or Belief in Spring. That is still forthcoming. I couldn't quite put it all together. Forgive me for that. Instead, I'm bringing you three major works Brahms's Alto Rhapsody, performed by Carol Bryce and Serge Kusevitsky. Debussy's La Damoiselle Élue, performed by Désirée Émile Engelbrecht and Françoise Augeas. And from 1958, Eleanor Stieber, singing Barber's Knoxville, summer of 1915, accompanied by Edwin Bitcliffe. Why did we start with I Left My Heart in San Francisco? Not just because, of course, I'm thinking of our friends there, whose city is in complete lockdown right now, but also because I composed my own words to that very tune. And this is the song. I left my mic in Wauwatosa. That's right. I left my mic in Wauwatosa. In the guest room of my brother's house when I departed for the airport. I guess that was on Thursday that I left. I got home and the whole time I was, you know, when I checked my suitcase and when I picked it up again, I thought to myself, God, that is awfully light. I wonder why that weighs like five pounds less than it did when I went out. Well, it was because the microphone was not in there. So, oops. But it gave us a chance to hear Jewel Brown, and I'm recording on the built-in mic on my laptop. Not terrific. So I'm going to try and keep the narration to a minimum. And let's just jump in with our first piece. That is the Johannes Brahms Alto Rhapsody. This is a performance from 1946 with Carol Bryce, the distinguished, magnificent, superb, versatile African-American contralto singing with the Boston Symphony conducted by Serge Kusevitsky. I just want to say a few words about the piece. Brahms composed this work in 1869, and it has, unlike some of his other work, I think it has a very 
specific personal association. He was very, very good friends with the Schumanns, Robert and Clara. In fact, he was rather hopelessly in love with Clara, and after Robert committed suicide in 1856, he still maintained his association with Clara. It's unknown if there was ever any physical manifestation to that relationship, but then he developed an infatuation with their daughter, Julie, and when he found out that she, more than 20 years younger than he, was going to be married to a count, he composed this work in response to that. Clara, upon receiving the manuscript from Brahms, wrote the following in her diary. It is long since I remember being so moved by the profound pain of words and music. It is the expression of his own heart's anguish, if only he could speak so candidly in his own words. The text that Brahms set is by Goethe. It's an excerpt from his poem Herzreise im Winter. The Hearts are a mountain range in Germany, and Goethe had a few years before written the novella The Sorrows of Young Wirtia, and it's about a young man who's unhappy in love who commits suicide. Well, it was inspired by Goethe's own near suicide, and his choice of not killing himself led him to write that novella instead. Unfortunately, it also created a social phenomenon in which many, many sensitive young men were committing suicide. Goethe himself had received a letter from such a young man asking Goethe to please come to his aid to keep him from committing suicide. It was, in effect, uh, a suicide intervention, if you will. Goethe went to attend to this young man and did, in fact, succeed in preventing his doing himself in. Following that trip, he went for a journey into the Hartz mountain range and composed this really uncharacteristically dark and negative poem. So I'm going to share just a little bit of that with you, and then we will listen to this beautiful performance by Carol Rice and Serge Gusevitsky. So here is the portion that Brahms sets. We'll describe the structure of the piece soon. There's an orchestral introduction, and then the alto comes in and says, Aber abseits, wer ist's? Um, now I'll just read uh, this portion of the text to you in English translation. But who stands there alone, in the thicket? His path is lost. Behind him the bushes are closing together. The grass springs up again, and the desert engulfs him. Ah, who'll heal his afflictions, to whom balsam has turned to poison? Who drank hatred of mankind from the very fullness of love? First despised, and now a despiser, he in secret wastes all that he is worth in vain selfishness. And at this point, there is a chorale, and the alto is accompanied by a men's chorus. And these are the words at that point. Ist auf deinem Zalter, Vater der Liebe, ein Ton seinem Ohre vernehmlich, so erquicke sein Herz. If there be in thy psaltery, Father of love, one single tone that may please his ear, then quicken his heart. Open his clouded gaze to the thousand fountains nearby the one who thirsts 
in the desert. Let's turn to this performance from August 3rd, 1946, with Serge Kusevitsky conducting the Boston Symphony Orchestra and Festival Chorus in this performance that took place at Tanglewood with Carol Bryce, the featured contralto soloist. I don't think it's even necessary to discuss the significance of this piece for the world in which we're living right now.
Last week's theme concerned itself with separation and reaching out over distances, both geographical and psychic. And this next piece is certainly about an attempt to forge a reconnection between lovers who have been separated by death. It's a setting of Dante Gabriel Rossetti's poem, The Blessed Damosel. Debussy was attracted to this when he read the text in a French translation. He set the text in 1888 while he was in Rome as a recipient of the Prix de Rome Scholarship Prize. The Prix de Rome was notorious as being a very conservative institution. That is, the members who served on the jury were always looking for mainstream contributions rather than innovation. Certainly, the piece seems relatively unadventurous for Debussy, but for the time, there were a number of things that were quite different. First of all was the setting of the text. Second of all was the use of modes that he employs throughout the piece. Additionally, the pre-Raphaelites were virtually unknown in France at this point. Certainly the art had received very little exposure. I mentioned that he had found this translation, but again, that was one of the very first to appear in France. In its orchestrated version, it was the first of Debussy's orchestral pieces to be performed in public. Of some interesting things about this poem, Rossetti was inspired by Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven, in which the narrator is mourning the loss of his beloved who has died. This is particularly interesting given Debussy's lifelong obsession with the work of Edgar Allan Poe. Rossetti decided to turn the tables and think about what it would be like from the perspective of the beloved who had died and was longing for a reunion with her lover. Hence, he composed this poem, and after that, he also did a painting. I will show that to you on the notes page, or you can Google it to see The Blessed Demoiselle of Rossetti. It's a very famous painting, a very pre-Raphaelite. A lot of people find this style very tacky. They don't really care for it. I have to confess, of course, since I'm such a lover of things tacky, I do actually love this painting, and I adore this piece. It is one of my very favorite pieces in the entire universe. So I really struggled with what performance I was going to present to you, because there are so many great ones. But then I came upon this one, and the conductor is Desiree Emile Ingelbrecht, who had an early association with Debussy himself. I believe he was involved in the first performance of Le Martyr de Saint-Sébastien, the martyrdom of Saint Sebastian. I presented him in my Suzet 101st birthday tribute because there are extant, I think three or four, brilliant radio performances that he did of Pelias et Mélisande. In the 1955 radio performance, Suzet is the Golo, which was certainly his greatest role on the operatic stage. And the Mélisande in that performance is Françoise Augeas, 
who in other performances of Ingelbrecht sings the role of Ignold. It's interesting because in both she brings out a very childlike character to whichever role she's portraying. And in fact, she does the same thing here with the Blessed Damosel. The other thing for which Françoise Augeas is particularly remembered is her performance as L'Enfant in the 1962 Lauren Marcel recording of L'Enfant et les Sortilèges, the wonderful fantasy opera of Maurice Ravel and Colette. Ingelbrecht, he has a very fine sense of drama. He certainly brings that out in his performances of Peleas. He also brings it out in this 1954 performance of La Demoiselle Lue. He's got a couple different performances of it extant that are available. This one I had not heard before. The one I had heard before with a Japanese singer singing the Demoiselle really was not to my liking. I didn't like the soloist at all. This performance of La Demoiselle Lu is from the 30th of December 1954 with the orchestra and chorus of the well, they call it here the National Orchestra and Choir of France. It's the Orchestre National, the RTF. Okay, let's talk just a little bit about the structure of the piece. There's a long central section, which forms really the heart of the work, in which the damoiselle, looking down, imagining her lover on earth, sings about what it will be like when they are reunited. This is preceded and followed by sections for a mezzo-soprano narrator and female chorus who comment on the action. The narrator, the recitante in this performance is someone named Ginette Guillamat. I had never heard of her before, and I must say, I really like her a lot. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read you the lines of the demoiselle herself in the original Rossetti setting. The French begins, Je voudrais qu'il fût déjà près de moi. Car il viendra. I wish that he were come to me, for he will come. Have I not prayed in heaven, on earth? Lord, Lord, has he not prayed? Are not two prayers of perfect strength? And shall I feel afraid? When round his head the aureole clings, and he is clothed in white, I'll take his hand and go with him to the deep wells of light. We will step down as to a stream and bathe there in God's sight. We too will stand beside that shrine, occult, withheld, untrod, within whose secret growth the dove is sometimes felt to be, while every leaf that his plumes touch saith his name audibly. We too will seek the groves where the Lady Mary is, with her five handmaidens, whose names are five sweet symphonies, Cecily, Gertrude, Magdalen, Margaret, and Rosalise. He shall fear haply and be dumb, then will I lay my cheek to his and tell about our love, not once abashed or weak, and the dear mother will approve my pride and let me speak. Herself shall bring us hand in hand to him round whom all souls kneel, the clear-ranged unnumbered heads bowed with their aureoles, and angels meeting us shall sing to their citherns and citoles. There will I ask of Christ the Lord this much for him and me. 
only to live as once on earth with love, only to be as then a while, forever now, together, I and he. She gazed and listened, and then said, less sad of speech than mild, All this is when he comes. She ceased. The light thrilled towards her, filled with angels in strong level flight. Her eyes prayed, and she smiled. But soon their path was vague in distant spheres, and then she cast her arms along the golden barriers and laid her face between her hands and wept. Here's the performance from the 30th of December 1954, the
Now, the final major work that I'm going to present today is a performance of Samuel Barber's Knoxville Summer of 1915. This work was commissioned by the soprano Eleanor Steber in 1947. Barber had recently encountered the text of James Agee, who also wrote the book A Death in the Family. This prose poem appears as a preface to that work when it was published. The story is that James Agee wrote this prose poem in 90 minutes in an effort to allow the free flow of what were, in fact, autobiographical ideas and impressions. His father was killed in a car crash when James Agee was very young. When Samuel Barber encountered this text, both his father and his aunt, the distinguished contralto Louise Homer, were very ill. They both died months after the completion of this piece and before it actually was premiered in 1948, again with Serge Kusevitsky conducting the Boston Symphony and Eleanor Steber, in fact, as the soloist. In 1950, Samuel Barber revised the score somewhat and reduced the orchestration for chamber orchestra. And this is the version that's normally performed these days. This version that I'm going to play for you is from an October 1958 live recording from Carnegie Hall of a mammoth recital that Eleanor Steber did. I think she was angry at the Met and she performed everything under the sun. And I'm not kidding you. I've got a complete recording of the concert. You're not going to believe everything that she does. It's superhuman. And she sings brilliantly throughout. And this was not the first work on the program. It was the 10th of October, 1958. So here was the program. First, she started with the Alleluia from Exultate Jubilate. Then she sang two arias of Mozart, Zefiretti Lusinghieri, the ingenue part of Ilia in Idomeneo. And then she sang Martin alla Arten, the enormous dramatic coloratura set piece that Constanze sings in Abduction from the Seraglio, Die Entführung aus dem Serai. Then she continued with the complete Berlioz song cycle, Les Nuits d'été. <laughs> then she started the second half with Qui la Voce from I Puritani. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, she does the high E flat at the end. Then she sang two enormous scenes from the Empress, the Kaiserin, in Frau ohne Schatten, which she had performed under Karl Böhm, I believe. I can't remember exactly where it was. I think it was a radio performance shortly before that. She does the big opening scene and then the scene at the Fountain of Life. She did both of those scenes. Then she did the Knoxville, concluding with a number of not insubstantial arias, Hernan in Volami, Dupuis le Jour, Visidarte, and Un Bel Di. As I say, superhuman. But that was Eleanor Steber, and she had a technique. Okay, this is one thing I want you guys to observe, listening to this. Apart from the simplicity of her expression, is also the way that she delivers the text in such a clear manner. And by the way, she also very much responded to this text and said that it really was the perfect depiction of her own childhood in Wheeling, West Virginia. The score is prefaced with these opening words of A.G.'s 
poem we are talking now of summer evenings in knoxville tennessee in the time i lived there so successfully disguised to myself as a child i'm going to read you a portion of ag's prose poem the text that barbara didn't set the part describing the sound of the locusts which is in concert with the sound of the hoses that the fathers have each in turn and in unison used to water their lawns that's a long section at the beginning of the poem i'll put a link to the entire piece so that you can read it at your leisure once we get to the part where barber set the text then i will let eleanor steber take over because her diction is so clear and precise that i think you'll be able to understand most of it the locusts carry on this noise of hoses on their much higher and sharper key the noise of the locust is dry and it seems not to be rasped or vibrated but urged from him as if through a small orifice by a breath that can never give out also there is never one locust but an illusion of at least a thousand the noise of each locust is pitched in some classic locust range out of which none of them varies more than two full tones and yet you seem to hear each locust discreet from all the rest and there is a long slow pulse in their noise like the scarcely defined arch of a long and high-set bridge they are all around in every tree so that the noise seems to come from nowhere and everywhere at once from the whole shell heaven shivering in your flesh and teasing your eardrums the boldest of all the sounds of night and yet it is habitual to summer nights and is of the great order of noises like the noises of the sea and of the blood her precocious grandchild which you realize you are hearing only when you catch yourself listening meantime from low in the dark just outside the swaying horizons of the hoses conveying always grass in the damp of dew and its strong green-black smear of smell the regular yet spaced noises of the crickets each a sweet cold silver noise three-noted like the slipping each time of three matched links of a small chain but the men by now one by one have silenced their hoses and drained and coiled them now only two and now only one is left and you see only ghost-like shirt with the sleeve garters and sober mystery of his mild face like the lifted face of large cattle inquiring of your presence in a pitch-dark pool of meadow and now he too is gone and it has become that time of evening when people sit on their porches Oh, 
Oh, <laughs> 
because everything changes with every passing day and virtually every passing hour right now. I can't predict what I'm going to bring you next week. Of course, I was going to bring you a big special April Fool's episode featuring some of my favorite horrible singers. I may still do that, or I may bring you the Schubert episode I was talking about earlier. I'm uncertain, but I didn't know until just a few hours ago what I was going to present to you today. I certainly hope that you enjoyed these three works that are of particular significance for our world right now. The final selection I'm going to play for you is Marian Anderson's recording of He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the big round world in his hands. He's got the wide world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the wind and rain. In his hands, he's got the sun and the moon. Right in his hands, he's got the wind and the rain. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got that gambling man. In his hands, he's got that lying man. In his hands, he's got the crap shooting man. Right in his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. week, I will continue to bring these podcasts to you no matter what. And that is my promise. Gundlach.